Passion Day. It is the culmination of the season of Lent. For some of you that have been working through Lent and kind of maybe set up a, a certain kind of fast of certain proportions or whatever, and today is that day to celebrate, right? And some of you got family things going on and dinners and all that kind of thing. It's going to be a fun, it's a fun day. But it's a good day. It's good to be here. And um, today we are going to finish up a series that we started uh, probably eight to, to ten weeks ago now. The series we've been called uh, Defining Moments. And we've been looking at the story in Matthew. Matthew is one of the apostles, one of the people that walked with Jesus. And there's a book in the Bible, the first one in the New Testament, called the the book of Matthew, the story of Matthew. And um, in it, he relays some of the stories that he encountered with Jesus as they led up to this pinnacle moment, this resurrection day. And so today we're going to look at one of the, well, the pinnacle defining moment, isn't it? It's the, the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I'd like to walk through it with you um, with these two questions in mind. So, the first question that we're going to look at today is, how do we know it's true? Because I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, I grew up in the church, okay? So I grew up hearing that it was true. But I never really knew if I could trust it. It was just what was taught to me. And I didn't know if I could believe it or not. But I did because a lot of good people believed it and a lot of people that I trusted believed it, so I believed it. But at some point, I wanted to know for certain, can this really have happened? I mean, we're talking about a dead guy and rising from the dead. That this doesn't happen in our world. It defies all of our expectations. All right, I just had to throw that one in again one more time. All right? It just doesn't happen. So how do we know, how can we be certain that this actually happened? So I'd like to give you three ways that I think you could defend this particular point if you needed to defend it. And then the next point that I'd like to answer for us is what do we do if it's true? What difference does it make? So I know it's true. Now what difference does it make for me? So let me give you three brief points that I believe can help you in an explanation with somebody who says, why do you believe that stuff? Why do you believe that he rose from the dead? Like, that just doesn't happen. All right. So first of all, we've already read the scripture. I read it very early on uh, in Matthew chapter 1, or 28, verses 1 through 7. It talks about these women. The women went to the tomb. Now, we know that in that time period, sadly, unfortunately, women were not regarded as being trustworthy. They were not the ones to transmit information. And so if something this significant happens, in theory, To say that the women were the first ones to see what happened, and the women were the ones that had to tell others what happened, that would not be the best way in that time period to make your case that this really did happen. And yet we know from all of the accounts that we have, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and a few other extra-biblical sources, historians, we know that the women were actually the first ones. They were the ones that the angels appeared to. 
They were the ones who were at the tomb, ready to do some things with some spices. They were there mourning. They were watching the proceedings. So we know that the women were the first ones. And as the accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were written down years and years later, those authors wanted you to know that it was the women that saw it first. It was the women that the angels appeared to. It was the women that Jesus appeared to. In effect, the women became the first apostles, that is, the tellers, the hearers and sharers of the good news. The women were first in line. Amen? Now, why do I use that as maybe a convincing proof? The reality is that the convincing proof is kind of upside down. If I wanted to convince, if I was in the first century and I wanted to convince you that Jesus rose from the dead, I certainly wouldn't try to tell you that the women were the first ones to see Jesus. But our authors, our scriptures, they wanted you to know what really happened. They wanted to tell you what they knew to be the truth of exactly what happened. And in its own way, kind of in the upside-down world that Jesus lives in, that becomes the first testimony to why we know that this can be true. Because if they wanted to try and sell it in some other way, they certainly wouldn't have used women to be the first eyewitnesses. But they weren't trying to sell us a bill of goods. They weren't trying to tell us something to make us believe that Jesus rose from the dead. They were just simply reporting the facts. And it defied the expectations of the time. So, the first proof comes right from the Scripture. The second proof is the guards' report. We didn't actually read that, but it says, as you move along from verse 11 to verse 15, that the guards were now in a quandary. The angels had showed up. The angels had appeared to these guards, and as the picture, if you can kind of see it, the the picture kind of relays that the guards fainted. They fell over, and they were kind of like, dead. But they had seen the angels. And then when they wake up, they see an empty tomb. And it says they ran in to tell the high priests. They ran in to tell the leaders. They had been entrusted with guarding this tomb. But the reality is the tomb was empty. And there was no way to hide it. So why do we know that Jesus rose from the dead Because even the people who were charged with trying to cover it up didn't try to say it didn't happen. Well, that's an interesting point, right? Because how easy would it have been to discredit these peasant fishermen? All you had to do was simply say, well, that never happened. Well, okay, if it never happened, then go produce a body. Oh, but we we don't know where the body is. Okay, so here, we're going to pay the guards a whole lot of money, and this is what you're to say. You're to say that his disciples came and stole the body and took it away. And you know that the scripture says that story stuck around for a long time. In fact, there are early church fathers, Irenaeus being one of them, Tertullian, who was writing in the year 200, who was saying that that story was still in existence some 200 years later. The story of trying to discredit 
the apostles by saying, or the disciples by saying that they had stolen his body. What they didn't say is that the body was still there. So if you want to believe that Jesus actually rose from the dead, you can look at those who were trying to cover it up. They never denied it. They knew it wasn't there. They tried to shift the blame. I think that's a significant point all throughout history Nobody has ever tried to deny that the body wasn't there. They've tried to make up excuses. And if you're trying to make up an excuse for stealing the body, ask yourself the question, when would the disciples have stolen the body? These guards were posted very soon after he was laid in there. And they certainly would have looked in there when they went to the post and rolled that stone across. They wouldn't have rolled it across an empty tomb. And the guards were stationed there. So when would the disciples have had a chance to come and steal the body. And even if they did have a chance, which I don't consider they even had a chance, what would they do with it? Where would they have put it that they couldn't have actually been found? Like, there's just so many holes in this idea that somebody was shifting the blame. So, those are two convincing ways. The women and the guards report. The third one that I think is even more convincing than those first two. But I think those first two are pretty convincing. But the third one is the oral tradition. So here's a little bit of a history lesson. Just hang with me for a second. We think that the book of Mark, which is the second gospel, we go Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, if you know the New Testament. Mark is that book of the Bible that we think was actually written first. Probably predates Matthew and Luke. We know all three of them predate when John was written. Well, Mark was written in the 60s, we think, somewhere in the 60s A.D. That would have been a good full 30 to 35 years after Jesus had been crucified and and raised from the dead. So is that the best source that we have? Because he talks about it, Mark talks about it. Then Matthew and Luke come along, and they were probably written in the 80s. And then John comes along, he was probably writing in the 90s A.D. So are these the best sources? Are they the closest sources Because things could have gotten muddled over the course of three decades, couldn't they? Like the story could have gotten mixed up. Well, they're not the earliest books in the New Testament. In fact, we have some letters that were written by a guy named Paul. Paul was one of the apostles. And those letters were actually written before some of the Gospels were written. And we have a letter in 1 Corinthians, one of the few letters that is actually authenticated to Paul, that was written in the mid-50s A.D., So that's only now 25 years after the resurrection. And here's what Paul says. Let's read it together. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 8. He says, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, And then to the twelve. And after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. Most of whom are still living. Though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James. And then to all the apostles. And last of all he appeared to me. Also Paul. As to one abnormally born. This particular creed is 
been the subject of much debate by many scholars. But as the scholars have looked at this, they have tried to date this particular creed to within and have been successful to dating it within one to three years after Jesus was raised from the dead. Now, how did Paul hear about this? He says, for what I received, I also passed on to you. What he received was something most likely from the oral tradition. And when he was converted, we read about that if you want to read about his conversion in Acts chapter 9. We read about his appearing, you know, the Lord appearing to him. And it says then in Galatians that he went off and he studied and he learned and he visited some people in Damascus and Jerusalem. And most likely it was during those times that he was hearing this particular creed. And so this is an oral tradition that dates all the way back to one to three years after Jesus rose from the dead. So our scriptures not only tell the story, not only give some weird kinds of proofs that actually make the case pretty strongly, but we also have Paul and the oral tradition that was being passed on that says, this is exactly what happened. And we can believe it. And why is this important? Because this is what the early church based their faith on. This is what the early church and those apostles and those disciples based everything on. Why would they surrender their lives? Many of the disciples were crucified or mar crucified upside down in the case of Peter or martyred or other. Why would they give their lives for anything other than the resurrection? That's what we have to ask ourselves. If we have any doubts about whether the resurrection actually happened. Lee Strobel, in his book, The Case for Miracles, identified... Now, Lee Strobel was an atheist. He worked for the Chicago Tribune. And at one point, he had a crisis of faith. And he's like, his wife came to know the Lord, and he's like, I don't believe this stuff, so I'm going to set out to disprove both that Christ rose from the dead and everything else about Christianity. Lee Strobel set out to do this over the course of two years. And he couldn't do it. And he was an acclaimed journalist. He could not prove that Jesus did not, raise from, did not rise from the dead. In fact, he found nine different sources, both inside and outside of the New Testament, that corroborate that people had encounters with the risen Christ. So corroborating what Paul already said, that he encountered over 500 different people. Not just what Paul said, but he found some other sources, other historians, Josephus and Tacitus and others. These were not Christians. Some of them were Jewish, but outside sources, extra-biblical sources, he could not prove that Christ did not rise from the dead. We don't have all of the earliest sources for our Gospels, for the biblical account but we know that the early church shared these stories. And this is what became the foundation of their faith. That Jesus Christ rose from the grave. Amen? Amen. Amen. Skeptical atheist scholars such as D.H. Van Dalen remark and said this. It is extremely difficult to object to the fact of the empty tomb on historical grounds. Most objectors do so on the basis of theological or philosophical considerations. What does that mean? Even as an atheist, even as a, a liberal scholar who's trying to debunk these myths, he said you really can't deny it based upon historical grounds alone. 
Interesting. An atheist, another atheist scholar, Gerd Ludemann, says this, it may be taken as historically certain that Peter and the disciples had experiences after Jesus' death in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ. This is an atheist scholar. When it comes to believing that Jesus was literally and physically resurrected after his death, Americans were polled by LifeWay Research. Do you know that only 64% of Americans believe that the biblical account of the resurrection actually occurred or was completely accurate? 64%. That means 6 out of, 6.5 out of 10 of you, well, that's 3.5 out of 10 of you are kind of highly skeptical that it even happened, right? 23% actually disagree. They say it never really happened. 13% are not really sure at all. They don't know. Almost all of us, all of us with evangelical beliefs, 98% actually believe the story, according to this poll. But only about half of all Americans who hold evangelical beliefs, who do not hold evangelical beliefs, believe in the story of the resurrection. So this story still creates significant controversy within our world and within our culture. And some of you know those stories. Some of you know the controversy. Some of you know the conversations you've had with individuals who question whether it's your faith or the faith of a church or the church of your parents or whatever it is. You know that there are questions out there. Why do you believe in all that myth and mythology? And why do you, under, why do you go to church? And what's all that for? And I would have the same question. Because if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, if Jesus isn't who he says he is, we got no reason. There's no reason to be. There's no reason to have this day if that is the truth. Like, it just didn't happen. So, one of our great New York senators is attributed with this quote. He says, everyone is entitled to their own opinions, but not their own facts. And the reality is that's the world that we live in, right? Everybody can have an opinion. But the truth of the matter is you believe in the gospel, you believe in the story of Jesus, you believe in some of the extra-biblical accounts as Lee Strobel uncovered and many others have, uncover, uh, have uncovered. It's hard to disprove that Jesus actually rose from the dead. But intellectually, we can kind of say, that's cool, right? We can say, oh, that's, that's great, I believe that, whatever. And... Many of us can walk out of these doors this morning and it doesn't make one lick of difference. It doesn't change anything about who we are, what we do, what we say, how we live. And that's the next question that we have to answer. Because if we can answer how do we know it's true with the few little things that I've shared, and there are many others if you want to have some more to go on, but if you can answer that question, then the next logical question is, what difference does it make? What difference does it make to my life? Is it going to change the way I live? Is it going to change what I do tomorrow when I wake up and go to work? Is it going to change what I do when I go to school, do my homework, interact with my friends at school when I'm Facebooking and Instagramming and all the different things? Does it make a difference? Does the resurrection actually make a difference? So I think that this is what we would call in our Defining Moments series the moment of truth. Because this is what it all hinges on. 
This is the impact. This day is the defining moment. So what do we do now? I would challenge you with three things today. Three things that you can do today to live into this reality. And I think the first one is wrapped up in hope. This story, this reality needs to inspire hope within us. Because we live in a world that is struggling with hopelessness. We live in a world of dead-end jobs and broken dreams and broken relationships. And we live in a world of of struggling to figure out what comes next and where I'm going to live and who I'm going to marry and what relationship I should be in and should I live with them, shouldn't I live with them. All those things that just kind of weigh heavy on us. And we forget that there's hope beyond that. There's hope in the name of Jesus Christ because He rose from the dead. There's hope that gives us a different perspective on our lives. I'd love to read for you from Romans today. This is the passage that Paul was writing to the Romans and trying to explain this fantastic mystery. And he can barely put it into words. He can barely put into words how much hope we should have because of this story. So I'm going to start Romans chapter 6, verse 3. It says this. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Let me take a run at that again because I'd love to hear some amens. All right, I know it's warm in here. Hang with me. This is Easter Sunday. Let's celebrate a little bit. All right, so I'm going to give you a run at that one again. All right, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Amen. Amen. For we have, if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we will certainly also be united with Him in a resurrection like His. For we know that our old self was crucified with Him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died with has died has been set free from sin. Amen? Amen? Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, He cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over Him. The death He died, He died to sin once and for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. Amen? In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. You can read in that. Paul's enthusiasm. How do I put this into words? Christ is risen. That means all this stuff I struggle with, the sin, the nature that kind of holds me down and and prevents me some ways from doing and living in full freedom, like that's all gone in Christ. Because He defeated death. And He rose from the grave. Up from the grave he arose. Amen? So we have hope today because he rose from the dead. The second thing we can do is believe. We have to put our faith in Jesus Christ. And there may be some of us here today who are on the fence, who have never really put their full weight upon the truth of Jesus Christ. Imagine Jesus being on the cross. The final end. We talked about this in Good Friday service. 
But imagine him hanging there. I can imagine his trust was challenged. And he cries out, Why have you forsaken me? He cries out with this sense that, I don't know where you are, God. I don't know why it feels like I'm all alone. I don't know what this is all about, but I trust you. He trusted him to death. And look what God did for him. Amen? We need to believe in Jesus Christ in every area of our life and surrender every area of ourselves to Him, our bodies and what we do with our bodies, our minds and what we fill it with, our actions, our daily pursuits. Everything needs to be given to Jesus Christ. We need to believe and surrender it all to Him. Let Him come in and take over and be Lord of our lives. Because He rose again, it must make a difference in how we live, in who we are, in what we do, how we serve other people. It must make a difference. It can't just be something that we give intellectual assent to. So we hope. We believe. And then we share. We have to share the good news of Jesus Christ. This is not a story that we just gather once a year to tell ourselves. This is not a story that we keep to ourselves. This is not something for these four walls. This is something for the world. Jesus did it in full openness for the rest of the world to see. He was laid bare on the cross. He presented many convincing proofs of an empty tomb for the world to see. And so we share that belief. It says later on in Matthew 28 these words, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. As you share this good news, don't assume that people know it. Increasingly in our world, people don't know this good news. And increasingly in this world, they don't care about this good news. Don't assume assume they don't know, but don't assume they don't care. Speak into their lives. Open and door a conversation. Ask them. Tell them about the difference Christ has made in your life and begin to see if their eyes open up. Some people will be green apples. They're going to be people that aren't ready for, for more of it. Some people are going to be red apples. They're going to be like, oh yeah, that's just falling from the tree. They want to know more. Share. Don't assume they know it. And share this good news. And you don't have to go around the world. You know that, right? Look at, look at our congregation right here. We got the world right here. Right in our city. We don't have to go very far. We can share that good news. Some of us get a little bit nervous. We think about this idea of sharing the good news as evangelism. And we, we shrink back and we get a little bit nervous. I'm going to call Dr. Thomas if you come forward and, and be ready. Dr. Thomas is going to share a little bit of his story about sharing the good news. He has a very unique perspective. He grew up in Jamaica. It's a very different environment than America. And I love to hear his passion and his story for sharing the good news. But that's really what evangelism is, right? How many of you have told somebody about something that you like on the Internet? Go check that out. Anybody ever said that? Anybody ever shared a post of something? Oh, you should see this post. Anybody ever said that? Come on, you're not raising your hands. I know you have. 
because I see your posts, right? I, I see it. So you share stuff all the time. You share stuff that you care about. You share stuff that interests you. That's all sharing the good news of Jesus Christ is all about. Share the difference that Jesus Christ has made for you. Dr. Thomas, would you come and share us with us a little bit about that for you? Amen. I couldn't help but go to this scripture initially. 2 Corinthians 4, 4. This is spiritual warfare. No matter what you may think about it. It said in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Grab your pen and a piece of paper. Have that close to you. In the 1970s, about mid-1970s, this was the outbreak of the charismatic movement in the United States, sweeping across uh, the Caribbean. I was a young man in, um, in high school at the time. And from the very first day I went to high school, we have this thing in Jamaica where you ask, what do you want to be when you grow up? And of course, I'd read um, Taylor, Mission into China. And in my heart, there was this, just this fire. I wanted to be a missionary doctor. And that thing was seared in my mind and in my heart. And I decided everything. I was consumed with that at that age. And then in high school, I became a Christian. And man, we were taught how to share the gospel with our fellow schoolmates. And I couldn't wait at lunchtime. We'd be in the classroom, we'd be hoarse. We'd be singing, we'd be praising, we'd be going out and sharing the gospel. And you know what we did? We practiced a lot with each other. Just like Pastor Scott would say, do you believe there's a God? Do you believe Christ died and rose? And you had to come up with the answers, right? We'd dig into the scriptures, we'd get those answers. Even almost 40 odd years from now, if I'm approaching someone to share the gospel, there are three scriptures that just seared in my mind. The first one is Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The second one that would follow after that was Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. That second one, you can use that alone to cover God's glorious plan for mankind from Genesis to Revelation. And if you want to know how to do that, go talk with Pastor Scott. <laughs> because I think we can arrange a workshop where we can actually do it. And then, of course, the last scripture is 1 John 1, verse 9. I, I, I mean, that's just part of our DNA. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Those are the three scriptures you need to share the gospel. And as a matter of fact, you only need one. Romans 6, 23. 
it was a blast in high school for me. When that charismatic movement swept through Jamaica, we used to meet at the Sheraton Hotel. These leaders, spiritual leaders, there was just the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. There were miracles after miracles. And some of you guys who are probably outside of the United States or outside of here know what I'm talking about. Sick were healed. Spirits were cast out. There were word of knowledge. There were prophecy all around us. And we practiced it too in school until they kick us off the campus. And we went to Sister, we call her Sister T's house at the back of the school, not less than a block away. And we'll continue over there. We would go on the buses. We would share the gospel. Now, I know I can't do that here. (laughs) But I'm just sharing you within our culture. We could do that. And people were receptive and the spirit was moving. During that time in high school, my brother, who was 13 years older than myself, At the latter part of my high school years, I actually lived with him. And I really thought by living the Christian life and try to express or live out the likeness of Christ. In my mind, I was thinking, you know, he he can see the image of Christ in me. And that should be enough. So my hope was, as I lived, as I interacted with him, that eventually he would get the message. You know, you say little things like, hey, you need to go to church. And he would just probably look at me and go, hmm. But that was a hope, that by living it out daily, he would eventually come to the Lord. Let's fast forward. Three years ago, I was called that my brother had metastatic prostatic cancer. I was a doc. I'm a doc right now, so I knew what that meant. He probably doesn't have a long time to live. And here I was thinking, oh my, my. He's not saved. I don't think my brother knows the Lord. So, of course, my wife, myself, we flew down to Jamaica about three years ago. Right? And we met with my brother and her girlfriend. And of course, Romans 3.23, <laughs> Romans 6.23, 1 John 1 verse 9, and the prayer. We share the gospel with my brother. He accepted the Lord, and his girlfriend accepted the Lord. No, I know, and you all know, that's only the beginning, <laughs> right? Now you have to live out that faith. You have to walk the walk. You have to become a disciple of Christ. But I do believe he's saved. Just like the thief on the cross. Father, remember me when you come in paradise, right? And the Lord said, yeah, you will be with me. So I I do believe my brother is with the Lord. The first scripture I read, we need to understand that the devil is actively trying to prevent people from understanding or appreciating the word of God. We have the light of life, the Holy Spirit in us. He will guide us. He will lead us as we boldly share the word of God with other people. 
regardless of a culture. Now, we have to be sensitive. We have to be gentle. We have to come from a heart of love and understanding. And I could go into a whole thing about the perspective course and worldview, but I won't. (laughs) I just want to leave two scriptures with you. The first one I'm trying to see which one I wanted to use here It's from Romans 10 and verse 14 How then can they call On one they have not believed in And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard And how can they hear without someone in America, I don't, like, I don't think people like the word preaching. <laughs> this is another thing I'm learning about being in this culture. Right? You have to be careful about your words. You're saying the same thing, but you just need to use a different word. So I will say, proclaim to them. Or converse with them. Okay? Share gently and lovingly. And Colossians 4, 2, 6. Devote yourselves to prayer. Being watchful and thankful. And pray for us too that God may open a door for our message. That is very important. We need to pray more about God opening doors of people's hearts, doors in the community. We have to let the Holy Spirit prepare the ground for us. We are not the one really doing the the, the growing and the multiplying. We're going to plant the seed. We're going to go out there and we're going to work. So prayer and fasting is, is, is critical. So that we may proclaim the mysteries of Christ... For which I am in chains. This is Paul speaking. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly. As I should. Be wise in the way you act. Towards outsiders. Make the most. Of every opportunity. Isn't that important? Every opportunity. You get to share the word. Let us be courageous. Christ said to the disciples. Wait in Jerusalem. Until you receive the gift, which is the gift of the Holy Spirit from the Father. And what he said when the Holy Spirit came down at, at Pentecost, that they received power to be witnesses, right? That's what they were waiting for. But what most of us don't understand, that the most dangerous place to be at that time was Jerusalem. They were killing the Christians, right? Yet still he said, wait in Jerusalem. James, I think, was the first one who got executed in Jerusalem. So that was a dangerous place. But they remain obedient. So it's very important that we take every opportunity and be obedient, of course, to God or to Christ or the Holy Spirit as he leads us. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Looking back, this is what they were preparing me for back in Jamaica at the time. Asking those questions. Asking those tough questions. Don't be afraid to ask a tough question. Look at those atheists. They could not come up with something that would refute the resurrection. Because it is the truth. So we don't have to be embarrassed. We don't have to feel as if... Most people think because you're a Christian, you're dumb. On the outside. But you know what? I really don't care personally so I'm going to throw the challenge I would like you to write down three names 
of individuals that you really want to see come to the Lord or someone who has been walking with the Lord but somehow has drifted away. I'm going to take up this challenge. I've started it, but I'm going to be much more earnest about it now. And for 30 days, I'm going to ask whoever decides to take up that challenge. I'm not asking everybody to do it. Just if you feel that you want to do it along with me. I want you to pray for those three persons every single day. And I'm also going to ask you to pray that God will fill us with a heart of love, mercy, and compassion for those who are lost. Usually it takes 30 days to develop a habit. You know where I was going, Eric. (laughs) Shaking your head. That's what we need to develop. Spiritual habits. Spiritual disciplines. Thank you. Thomas, and uh, thank you for um, sharing what other cultures experience when we have to tell this story and what it's like in other places. So with that testimony, I'd like to close our series and close our day today. I'm going to invite the worship team, if they would come forward. They have one more song to sing with us, and then we will close. But um, today is that defining moment, right? And uh, I resurrected an old hashtag that we used to use. Uh, The hashtag is live like it matters. That's today. Let's live like today matters in our lives. There's a card. We call it a connection card in front of you in the back of your seats there. And uh, this is an opportunity maybe for you to tell us who you are. If you're new, you're visiting. We'd love to know that you are new and visiting with us. So would you fill out the one side of this card? There's uh, ways for you to connect with us on this card, and we'd love to know your story. We'd love to be able to follow up with you. This card can be placed in one of these baskets here, or the ushers will be in the back with a similar basket. On the other side of this card is a way for you to tell us, maybe today was that day for you. And it says right at the top, I'm dedicating my life to Christ for the first time today. So you can check that box, or I'm recommitting my faith in the Lord Jesus today. There's other things that you could write down, even prayer requests, and we will pray with you, and we have a prayer team that prays over these uh, all week long, honestly. So please fill out a connection card, especially if you're visiting with us today. Put that in. Also, if you have a tithe or an offering, you can share that in the baskets. We're going to sing one last song together, and then we invite you to linger, um, greet the the babies, greet the members, uh, greet uh, each other. Up in our community room, there's food and coffee and pastries and other things. We invite you to just linger and enjoy and continue to celebrate this wonderful day, this day of resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we close out our service today, Lord, we thank you for meeting with us. We thank you for the power of your word, and we thank you that we can trust your word to be true. We thank you that the message that was relayed to us was not a message that was conniving or manipulative. But Lord, it was just conveyed in truth. This is what happened. We don't need to tell it in fanciful ways. So Lord, I pray that as we hear that message today, that you will be impressing upon our hearts what difference does it make 
And then, along with Dr. Thomas, Lord, what, who can we tell that to? Who do we want to know that story? What difference can it make in their lives as well? So, Lord, we leave this service in your hands. We celebrate with one more song, and we give you glory and honor and praise. In Jesus' name, amen.